Welcome to the CUNY Lecture Series. In this edition, bad test taker, good news. Since 1963, U.S. students have been very bad at tests and very good at life, says CNN host Fareed Zakaria. He notes that during the same period of time, the United States has dominated the world of science, technology, innovation, entrepreneurship, and economic growth. Zakaria, the author of In Defense of a Liberal Education, tells an audience at the Graduate Center that the U.S. tradition of students receiving a broad general education that prepares you not for your first job but for your sixth job accounts for U.S. dominance. Um, first of all, I have to say these two very brilliant uh, guests of ours, uh, Leon and Farid, have both said they really like audience questions, and I do too. So, and Andre has agreed that maybe we'll cut it, uh, their brilliant uh, monologues and answers a little short so we can get to questions sooner if the audience would like to participate. So Farid, I'm gonna start with you and ask you, of all people, who people, I think many of us think of as kind of a policy guy, uh, polymath, uh, very globally minded, wrote a book that Barack Obama was very uh, visibly carrying around before he switched over to Jonathan Franzen. Um, who or what liberal education needs a defense from and why? Um, Thank you all very much. Thank you, Sam. Um, I think that the reason I wrote that book was I was struck by two, uh, two realities. The first was that there was this deep anxiety in the United States about the future of the country. Um, the anxiety because middle class incomes are down, because this recession has taken a long time to get out of and more generally because the world seems to be changing very fast in profound ways. And people felt that the old ways of doing things uh, are, aren't right. And so they had to, they were searching around for something new. And in that context, you have lots of people saying education should really simply be a trade. Uh, we need more people who can be welders. You heard it in the last one of, I think the last Republican debate, uh, Marco Rubio said, we need fewer philosophers and more welders. And then the New York Times, in its, own, in its inimitable way, did a fact check and discovered that the average wage of a philosophy uh, major was $92,000 and the average wage of a welder was $42,000. So that simply on a factual basis, it wasn't, it wasn't correct. But th there is that anxiety, and I wanted to try to articulate a defense for this very American idea that you, you, you get a broad general education. You know, in the 19th century, European countries like Germany, France, even Britain for the most part, with the exception of the Oxbridge system, had trade-based education. The whole idea was you apprenticed, you, you, know, you, you learned your father's trade, and you moved, moved on. In the United States, the feeling was people didn't want to lock themselves into one city, one guild, one trade. Uh, one craft, they wanted to move, they wanted to experience the dynamism of America, the economy, and so America always emphasized from very early on this idea of a broad general education that would prepare you not for your first job, but for your sixth job. That the, there was a sense that life changes, the society changes, that you change, and you try to develop this broad set of general skills. The second piece of it was that I feel people didn't understand what it what innovation was all about. The idea seems to be that we all need to become software programmers and that that would make us very innovative as a society. 
But innovation is actually a much broader, more complicated thing. And if you try to look at what societies are genuinely innovative, you come up with, you, you look at, you find yourself surprised. So I was, and I was surprised by this. We all know that Americans do very badly at standardized tests compared with, uh, you know, our peers in the rich uh, world. Uh, and so I asked myself, well, how did we do 10 years ago? The answer is very badly. How did we do 20 years ago? Very badly. How did we do in 1963, the first time there was an international test of 15-year-olds? Very badly. So you ask yourself, but if you look back over the last 40 years, what country has dominated the world of science, technology, innovation, entrepreneurship, you know, and economic growth? It's the United States, right? So somehow we're very bad at tests, but very good at life. Um, and how to explain that paradox? I, I, so I looked at other countries that are undeniably innovative. Uh, Sweden and, and Israel really pop off the charts on a per capita basis, obviously. And you ask yourself, you know, what, what is it in them? So the first thing I did was looked at how they did in these science tests. Guess what the answer is? Worse than the United States. <laughs> you know, the, so we come 24th in math in the PISA test, Sweden comes 26th, Israel comes 27th. Now, what do they have in common? They're all very open, dynamic, flexible societies with the economies. They're all very non-hierarchical in their approach to education, in their approach to life, so that you know, a junior researcher can challenge something that a senior researcher does. A, a junior person in a firm can challenge what the, what, what the uh, CEO wants. Um, they're also very confident. This is something you can actually measure because the PISA test started asking at one point in the early 80s, uh, after you did the math test, they would ask you, how do you think you did on the math test? <laughs> you can imagine what happens to the American students. We do lousily in math but we do really well on how we think we did. <laughs> and so when, when, when hearing this, uh, Bill Bennett, the Secretary of Education at the time, uh, said, it's clear what the problem in America is, we're better at teaching self-esteem than science. <laughs> and it's a good laugh, but I would put it to you that if you're trying to encourage entrepreneurship in a society, what's probably more important than science is self-esteem. You have to have confidence in yourself. You have to have confidence in your ideas. You have to have confidence that you can make it even when you fail because all entrepreneurs fail the first and the second and the third time and they pick themselves up. That's why Americans do well. It's not that we have better scientific training than Germany. Germany has much better scientific training than we do. Yet their rates of entrepreneurship are much worse than the United States. Why? Because they don't have that sense of confidence. They don't have that sense that bankruptcy is a temporary path to progress rather than a permanent matter of shame and obstacle. Look at Donald Trump boasting about bankruptcy, right? So for, all, for, for both those reasons, I felt that we were misunderstanding you know, the unique nature of American education, but also how societies and how people innovate. Uh let me ask Leon now, young though you are, you've been the president of a college for a very long time, and you, for some 40 years or more, and you've watched American education change. In fact, you have been one of the innovators yourself. Uh, some may remember a long profile of Leon in The New Yorker, fairly recently, about a new approach you had to college admissions and applications, how they should be done. What are the, the the most important changes you've seen for better and worse? 
So I'm most impressed by how things remain the same. Uh, people have a certain kind of investment in describing a change that doesn't really exist or is actually very superficial. Um, so I actually think that um, the actual university itself and the educational system, and I think Fareed made this point, has remained reasonably stable. Much less has changed than we would like to think. Um, one of the reasons why I'm not particularly uh, utopian or dystopian on technology. You know, we've been living with this sort of, you know, that the computer and internet, we're gonna put the classroom out of business. And uh, I smile because the university, if, you, if someone were to wake up in a, in a what was that um, novel when the guy wakes up? We're Van Winkle, right? Or the Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. Wasn't there such a yeah, story? So you, if, you, if someone from the 12th century woke up and walked on a campus of university, they would see more continuity than change. Yet, since the 12th century, if I listed all the technologies which have entered our life, um, you know, the current technological revolution is going to be absorbed and adapted uh, to the very fundamental character of the university's work. So, in, in America, I think very little has changed, except in some respect in the way the public looks at it there's much more emphasis on a kind of reductive standardized testing. This has been an American disease, bad tests uh, that um, drive curriculum and give policymakers a handle on whether things are going well or not, which are inaccurate. And um, uh, a sort of fear of, um, of and an anti-intellectualism toward who becomes a teacher and how we treat a teacher in in our classrooms, no sane person would be. Now, do you mean teacher. before the college level? Before, because the you've level. written that yeah. fifteen and sixteen-year-olds are ready for college. Yeah. Right? The American, the Amer the real weak spot in American education has always remained, in my view, adolescence. So the majority of Americans didn't finish high school until after the Second World War. And our system of high school has something admirable, which explains why the liberal arts are so important in the United States, because we didn't have a university preparatory secondary system, which selected people out at 11th grade or 13th grade or whatever, uh, 13th age. And so what you had is a democratic system in which people learned to live together but knew how to do nothing at all. And they went to college. And, um, <laughs> And the idea of the liberal arts that we have now really derives from America's entrance to World War I. Here in, in New York, when Nicholas Murray Butler and Columbia decided we're sending people to die in the fields of France and they have no idea where they are or why they're there. And so this from- in Columbia. In Columbia. So suddenly our conception of general education, the liberal arts and all this rhetoric, it picks up from a, an 18th and 19th century tendency, Jefferson was very concerned, that's why Jefferson is invoked, to create an American educational system that fit American politics and American life. Um, and that was not an import. And we created a hybrid of the British Oxbridge system and the German university that influenced the land-grant universities. But the idea of a liberal arts education and a general education was compensatory for a very poor secondary schooling by comparison to European standards. And um, so um, th the fact is that uh, 
uh, but the weak spot has always remained, especially as more and more people came into the public system, the secondary, the high school, the American high school. And um, so what I've seen over the last um, 20 years is that that has not improved. We do not recruit better people into the teaching system. The depression was great for teachers because people couldn't find work elsewhere, went into the teaching profession, and we had a much higher quality of teacher in the 40s and 50s. Many of them retired, uh, and the replacements uh, were not from the same caliber. So. Uh, we suffer from a deficit of quality of teachers and quality of training of those teachers, uh, particularly when young people come of age and they have real focused interests and they want to work with professionals. Uh, they're not children anymore. And uh, What age is that? Leon. I would say, with, in my view, is when the onset of puberty, and that uh, we really lose the most creative moments of young people uh, from the ages of 13 to 18. There's a kind of black hole. Uh, uh, some things do well, music and people are in computer science, but those are at the margins. And 18 is a little too late. Uh, the age of, of maturation has dropped biologically, owing to nutrition and, uh, and vaccination. And uh, so in, in answer to your question, is something really changed? The other thing that's changed is the attitude of the public, and Fareed responds to that. And that took a big um, leap forward in the financial crisis of 2007, combined with the technological revolution. This notion that studying English, even the President of the United States made some kind of derogatory comment about getting a degree in art history. Um, and somehow, this is the sort of anti-intellectualism of, of a kind of radical egalitarian theory that we who believe that Leonardo da Vinci is more interesting than, I don't know, the visual uh, character of uh, some Simpsons on TV uh, is a conceit that uh, it's a conceit of an aristocracy that doesn't exist. And if it doesn't make money and requires subsidy, it can't be very good. And there's a kind of um, uh, rage against things that seem useless and uh, are pretentious. Uh, and uh, there's no evidence that people who can quote Shakespeare by heart are better human beings. And nor should they have more political power. So the sort of putting forward high culture as a kind of self-improvement has a double-edged sword in the United States, which there are a lot of people, a lot of people are against it. And these, uh, these fields that are in the humanities and some social sciences are viewed as useless. As Fareed suggests, the facts are otherwise. Just as in the political campaign, people don't seem to care whether you're saying the truth. <laughs> people with liberal arts degrees have more earning power and less unemployment than any other graduates of the American University. So the idea that liberal arts are useless in an economic term, forget the other defenses of them, uh, has no factual basis. And yet there is this feeling that they're impractical. Parents are worried, what can you do with a degree in English? Um, let alone should they get a degree in the arts. That's really frightening. Um, and um, it's, it's, a, it's an attitude um, which is understandable. And we've done a bad job in the university of defending it. 
And in fact, many liberal arts programs are not very good. They're dominated by academic, self-interested academic, um, if you will, guilds. Explain what you mean by that. Well, these are people who go to graduate school, and you have to protect many things from their defenders. You have to protect music from musicologists. <laughs> you have to protect literature from professors of English. You have to protect history because people who feel they own it as if they were to own it as a trade or a possession and look down on the ability to communicate it um, are not necessarily the greatest scholars or the defenders. There's this kind of academic um, self-importance and they become professions which like to self-replicate. And uh, universities are in silos of departments uh, that talk to themselves and to each other. And a student comes to an undergraduate campus and has a catalog of courses listed by professional departments from graduate school. And no one has asked the question, what does the student need to know? And what does a student want to know? So curriculums that masquerade as liberal arts curriculums, often there's a too far a gap between the rhetoric and the reality. Um, I warned our two guests that I'm going to uh, read something to them. It's from a quite well-known book. It's called The American University. It's by the very distinguished Columbia professor who lived, we decided, to the age of 101. Uh, Jacques Barzin, who was very distinguished eminence at uh, Columbia University for many, many years, introduced Lionel Trilling to the novels of Henry James. Uh, those of you who thought Trilling discovered that himself. And um, Barzin's book was published in 1968. And it's, so it's cheering to me to look out at this audience, and this is meant only as a compliment, and know that some people here will actually remember what happened at Columbia in 1968. So I'm going to read a postscript. He actually writes P.S. at the end of his preface. And Barzin writes, the completed typescript of this book was in the hands of the publisher, all these archaic terms, uh, six weeks before the student outbreak of April 23rd, and that was not an outbreak to celebrate Shakespeare's birthday. <laughs> that disrupted the work of Columbia University, right? We know what he's talking about. All right, major student campus riots there, right? SDS and all the rest. I have since then found no reason to change or add to the substance of what I had written months earlier. So here's my question to these two guys. Um, you're both admirers of Thomas Jefferson. For each, you've got a chapter on the natural aristocracy that Jefferson thought a liberal arts university could create. Leon has written a book he's mentioned called Jefferson's Children. There are campuses now in the United States where Thomas Jefferson is not the most esteemed of our four persons, we'll call him, along with many other figures that we might think of as consequential, however flawed, but great. We discussed some of them, and you've been following this. Woodrow Wilson at Princeton. Um, there are questions about John C. Calhoun. Now, there's a strong case to be made against him. But nonetheless, Richard Hofstadter said, one of the few primary political thinkers 
in American history, essentially created the idea of concurrent majorities, which are giving us such a difficult time in Congress now, major figure. Harvard has decided that its college masters should not be called masters because that implies the students might be slaves. There's a whole series. Amherst has had trouble. And I say this only as a question. How does this affect, if at all, the way each of you think about the idea of the liberal uh, university, of the liberal education, and students, their expectations. Leon has mentioned students need to be taught the things they want to learn. So I'll start with you, Fareed. Does any of this, any of what you wrote or thought about, look different to you now? Um. No, not really. I think that when I look at the kind of things that have happened on college campuses in the last few months, you know, one has a variety of reactions. The first is when you talk about the, the, the issues like Jefferson, Calhoun, Woodrow Wilson, I think this is incredibly healthy and admirable that there should be, that students should care that much what the name of their dorm is, that they should inquire as to who these people are, that they should ask themselves, are these people we genuinely want to honor? And that's a fascinating and important and interesting discussion, and we can all have differing views about it. You can take the position, for example, I, I studied uh, Calhoun when I was getting my PhD uh, at Harvard, and Judith Schlaw, my professor, who was a, you know, uh, Eastern European Jew and, you know, refugee, still admired Calhoun enormously, even though he was, you know, really one of the prime uh, defenders and articulators of the idea of, uh, of slavery as a natural, a natural way of, uh, of uh, American life, because he was also a great democratic theorist, in, 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 as you point out, with concurrent majorities. Woodrow Wilson's a great, great towering figure in some ways, and a, you know, extremely nasty unrepentant racist in others. Uh, he, Jefferson was a slaveholder and the articulator of, uh, the, of some of the greatest ideas of, uh, of liberty and democracy. So people are complicated and you have to decide how, you know, in each case I think you'd have to weigh the balance. I have a preference for not adopting an Orwellian attitude towards one pa one's past, which is to say, you know, expunging people from the past as if they didn't exist. But I can also see the argument that some people cross the line at a point at which you just think it's not right to be honoring them. That's a great conversation to have. The other set of discussions that have been taking place on college campuses, I have, I, I have slightly different views on, which are these issues relating to trigger warnings, microaggressions, the, the desire for some students uh, who say they need safe spaces. Does I everyone, everyone's familiar with those terms? So, so okay. So this, is an, this is a, so this is an argument that has been taking place when, for example, at Yale, there was an email sent out by the kind of cultural dean saying, people should be aware, we're coming up on Halloween, don't wear culturally insensitive uh, uh, Halloween costumes, uh, black face or Indian headdress, I mean, um, feather not dot Indian in this particular case, uh, which I suppose is itself something culturally insensitive on both counts, but... but uh, I think you better stop right now, Fareed. Um, <laughs> but, but I think, um, and so, so send that out. A dean at, uh, at, uh, uh, at Yale, uh, actually the wife of a, of a, of a dean, uh, sent out an email 
in response to some students saying, hey, I don't think we should as a university be policing what students are choosing to wear. This should be a matter of free expression and you know, people have the right, uh, unfortunately, to be obnoxious if they want. If you don't like the costume, either tell them you don't like it or turn your eyes, uh, avert your gaze. Well, this produced a huge controversy, hundreds of students demonstrating, and the argument was, we need safe spaces. We need to feel, we need to have our identity affirmed, not assaulted. About that, I feel, uh, fundamentally, it's anti-intellectual. I don't have any problem with people arguing and saying, I hate your costume, here's why, I think you shouldn't be wearing it. Uh, I have no problem with people saying, you know, we need reparations for slavery and uh, somebody else saying no. But to argue that you cannot understand my pain because you're not black, Hispanic, you know, Asian, whatever, uh, is fundamentally anti-intellectual. College is not really about a safe space, it's about a common space a space you can all engage in intellectually, and frankly, it should be a little unsafe in intellectually. Now, why is this happening? And that gets to something very interesting Leon said. He talked about how American high schools were very good at helping people to learn how to live with everyone else. They weren't that good at teaching stuff, and that's why you ended up with colleges doing that. that, that. Here's what's changed about colleges in, in, in America, and I noticed this. I was on the Yale Corporation, the governing body at Yale, so I saw this up close. Students are arriving at American universities today um, far, coming from far more segregated backgrounds than we realize, probably more segregated than almost at any point in American history, by which I mean the rich live with the rich, the upper middle class live amongst themselves, the middle class live amongst themselves, the lower middle class live amongst themselves, and the poor live amongst themselves. The, the segregation by income is almost complete. The segregation by political orientation is almost complete. The segregation by race, alas, endures and has gotten worse. I mean, How long has this been going on? The, the last 30 years. This is the great rise of inequality and the sorting of Americans by political orientation, which are, and they are related phenomena, and the collapse of any effort at fair housing, integrated housing, things like that. So all that means that when these kids come to American college campuses, they are for the first time meeting people who come from very different backgrounds than they do. And because Ivy League colleges in particular have very generous financial aid policies, they really are meeting people who have, they've never spent any time with before. It's rich people meeting poor people for the first time, whites meeting blacks for the first time, you know. And that is what is causing a lot of this tension. These, these, you know, these people are very socially ill-equipped to deal with the incredible diversity of campus life today. And so they are, as a result, retreating to a kind of search for a safe space, and they aren't finding it. I, I don't know what the solution is, because you know, as often happens in America, there's a problem in American society, and then you expect the, the school, the high school or college to somehow fix it. This is a deeper problem than colleges can fix. And so I have some sympathy for, for, the, for the students who are searching for that, but ultimately, I still come back to the reality. This, this is anti-intellectual. You have to be willing to, in some way, uh, defend and articulate the, the views you have. They may be very strongly held, and they may very, be very strongly felt, but if you can't defend them, um, you know, th then how are you different from a Donald Trump supporter who says, you know, all I know is I love Trump and I don't need to explain to you why and if he says things that are factually wrong and if he says things, the black is, well, I don't, you, you don't get it. 
Well, if you attack that kind of anti-intellectualism, you cannot affirm it on a college campus when some Hispanic kid says, you don't get it. I'm Hispanic and you're not and you'll never understand. You'll never be able to cross that chasm. You have to be able to cross that chasm. Du Bois in one of the most famously quoted passages uh, says, you know, I, I, I invite, what is it? I, I waltz with Shakespeare and he winces not. I summon Aristotle and Aurelius and they come to me with no scorn nor condescension. What he's saying is I as a black man can access, have access to the greatest that has ever been written or thought and that has to be the spirit, it seems to me, of a liberal education. Leon? So let me try to, I, I, I agree on some points and disagree with Fareed. Number one, the segregation of students is enhanced by the internet because the internet has turned out not to be a conversation place, but a place where people drift to that which confirms their existing prejudices. So the internet is a wonderful thing, I love it, but it is not a tool for democratic conversation. Um, uh, so that, and the other is that complicates the matter in terms of confrontation with things you're not used to, is the American campuses are far more international. So they're not only this segregation within American society, but then the student on the university campus encounters people from places in the world about which they have only read or seen pictures. Now having said that, um, let me in a way as a devil's advocate try to make the best sense. There's so much been journalism about this being against free speech and confrontation of ideas, so let me put it in a different way. And before I do so, let me say that my view is that um, very similar to Fareed's on one point, um, I'm opposed to the falsification of the past to the best of our abilities. Our view of the past changes, what we evaluate and what we think, but there are certain hard facts that remain, and we have to be candid about them. So instead of people removing people's name, tell the truth. I think of it from a very narrow perspective, and I apologize. So if I had to protect myself from anti-Semitism in literature, music, and politics, I'd have very little to play, very little to read, and I wouldn't live in Stuyvesant Town um, because I would get up in the morning and realize here was a real anti-Semite. And um, so uh, my, my point is, and if I actually hadn't learned to survive microaggressions, my mother tells a wonderful story when she was in the seminar with Carl Gustav Jung in Zurich. She was the only Jew, and she was already an assistant professor, and she took the seminar especially, and when she made a comment, he would turn and he would say, you see, that's Jewish way of thinking. She stayed through the whole seminar. Now, she didn't have a lot of respect for Jung in the end, but not because of his anti-Semitism. She thought most of what he thought was fanciful. Um, and, um, but my point is that um, the, um, what we need to do on campuses is tell the truth. So instead of, you know, uh, Princeton's been hoisted on its own petard. It has been selling Woodrow Wilson as emblematic of how terrific they are without telling the truth about him, which is not very pretty. 
uh, I, you know, he was a president of the United States and he had great things about him, but he became their mascot, if you will. And they named a college to live in after him and they named the School of Public Affairs. Well, that, that, you know, that may be a little bit more legitimate, but they never told the truth away in a museum where you would say, the way I'm inclined, if I have to do a piece by Richard Strauss, I'm going to say that he was a collaborator with the Nazis. He was a great composer and a collaborator with the Nazis. I'm not going to hide the fact. When people love to sing Carmina Burana, which is official Nazi propaganda, but they don't tell you that. That's dishonest. That's airbrushing history. And so the students are right to say this history has been airbrushed, not to our benefit. As to the safe spaces, there is something to this. So if you want to have a real honest conversation, and that what you said is very important, I don't think there is one way to construe being black, being Indian from India, you, or to be Native American, um, or to be Hispanic or Mexican-American. You know, when Donald Trump talks about Mexico, the most amazing thing is he has no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> because Mexico is a very complex and very multifaceted of many different civilizations and cultures. It's not one thing. So the reductive use of identity is so offensive. But the fact remains that when you go to college and you really want your ideas to be challenged, that's very vulnerable. That's a very vulnerable moment when someone says you're wrong and what you believe and what you learn from home is wrong or maybe not right. And maybe there is no God. And maybe, so things you confront, the, the radical confrontation which you believe, you have to feel assured that that attack on what you believe is not personal. It's not racial. It's not reductive. This safe thing, the fact remains is racism is real. We elected an African-American president of the United States, but we now as white people have resented that he actually has ruled and been a reasonable president. No president has suffered such opprobrium merely because he's not white. So the fact is, the killing, the killing of a lot of black males, brutal killing of black males, is a reaction to this otherwise very, very positive event. You go to a college campus. I can take anti-Semitic humor easily because I'm white. And in the end, the racists are going to come to me after they get to a lot of other people. <laughs> On the food chain of hate in the United States, I'm pretty low down. <laughs> So the fact remains that I feel very safe. So if you want to be an anti-Semite, be my guest. <laughs> you know, I was at a, once at a dinner party trying to raise money, and the woman said, you know, I don't want to talk to you. And she said, I said, why? She said, you're just a pushy Jew, and I don't like pushy Jews. So I said, do me a favor. I've never had an opportunity to talk to someone who was a real anti-Semite. Please tell me why you don't like Jews. I would like to learn. I had the most fascinating conversation in any dinner party in my life. But I didn't feel threatened. I didn't feel threatened. She didn't think she could do to me. If you're a black student on American campus, that's not clear. And you have faculty members who are naturally snobs. So they naturally treat students with contempt. The number of great teachers who know how to teach a young novice and make them feel confident, even though they can do nothing, that's a gift. Now imagine if that novice is black and you're white. 
you don't even realize that, and if you're a white liberal and you want them to like you, you reduce your expectations and standards. They read you right away. The worst racists are those that have the rhetoric of, I'm not a racist. <laughs> so the fact remains, this safety issue is not as dumb as it's been reported. And finally, as to Yale and the costumes, I agree with you that Erica Christakis was, did not deserve what she got for writing. But I am embarrassed, I have to say, I didn't send out an email to Bard undergraduates not to dress up in, because thank God our vulgarities are a little different. <laughs> Yale knows its own people. <laughs> and there probably was a moment where on Halloween, some WASP kids ran around with Hasidic garb and bikinis. <laughs> and they thought that was funny. Final anecdote. My first year as a college president, I was invited by John Kemeny, the president of Dartmouth, student of Einstein's, inventor of BASIC, to the only football game I've ever attended on the 50-yard line was Dartmouth versus Cornell. Little did I know that in that time, they were debating the Indian symbol, which had been the symbol of Dartmouth, Native American Indian symbol. And there were alumni, conservative alumni, they were fighting. And he was the president. So I told him, I said, John, what do you think of the Indian symbol? He said, just wait. Came halftime, and a group of men, was still, uh, men came out on halftime, Dartmouth, white wasp guys, dressed in headdresses and tomahawks and bottles, whooping it up on the 50-yard line. <laughs> and he said to me, now, Leon, imagine that there's a college someplace in America with a chassid as its symbol. And in the 50-yard line, there are a bunch of people run out in Hasidic with Torah scrolls, you know, <laughs> with bottles of Slivovitz and uh, dancing around. What would you think? I said I would be annoyed. So let's not make too much fun of this. <laughs> Two great answers. Let me ask one more. Uh, of the uh, two very brilliant speakers, and then we'll go to questions. Does that sound good? Or do people are people sort of storing them up, or would you just rather hear these two guys? Go? Is that what you're at? No questions. Okay. So, so here's mine. <laughs> which, next one, which is, um, and Leon, you kind of touched on this, so I want to hear more about it. But we'll start with you again, Fareed. What makes a really great teacher? And is that different from what might make a really excellent scholar? And, and, we'll, and you know, Leon, some of you probably know, has the many creative things at Bard. And one of them is to bring in what, for lack of a better term, uh, we call public intellectuals. Christopher Hitchens once said to me, what's a private intellectual? He certainly wasn't one. Um, who aren't necessarily credentialed scholars. We talked about this a little bit. And, uh, do they develop uh, teacherly skills, or are they inherent? What's your idea, Farid, of what makes a really good teacher, and might that be separate from these other qualities we admire in public writers, people like yourself, who could do both things, yourselves? 
Well, I was never a good teacher. So when I, everybody who gets PhDs and then drifts away from academia always says, but I love teaching the kids. I didn't. Um, <laughs> I, I enjoyed the, the seminars and I enjoyed uh, the lectures, but what I really hated was grading. Uh, one of the great joys of most of life is when you're reading something bad, you can stop. Um, so that's are, Freud's pain and pleasure principle, yeah. right. <laughs> if, if, however, you are grading uh, 25 <laughs> papers and they're bad, um, you can't stop. In fact, you have to read the bad ones more carefully because you're going to give them bad grades and then they're going to come to you and then they're going to contest the grade with a, with a dean and so you really have to make sure you spend you know, time figuring it out. Um, but well, you were I also an editor and you had to do the same thing. But I could reject a piece <laughs> if it was bad. There was, a, there, was a, there was an area at Foreign Affairs of, you know, when you, had, when you were getting a piece by the sort of Secretary of State types that had fell into that category. You couldn't quite reject it, <laughs> but you had to somehow make it palatable. And, that, those, and those were the nightmare uh, pieces when I was, when I was editing, as, as you well know. Um, I'm going to leave it to, to Leon to talk more specifically about the, the, the teacher, uh, you know, what makes a great teacher, because he's going to be so much more um, intelligent and articulate about it. But let me talk about a piece of it, or take it, look at it from another prism, which is, what makes people creative? What makes people innovative? Um, what I, one of the things I worry about in our educational system, and you know, Paula and I uh, have three kids, they're going through the New York City uh, private school system, and I have to say, I'm basically not so impressed because there's an enormous amount of conformity. Uh, How old are your kids? 16, 12, and 7. There's an enormous amount of conformity. There's a, you know, there's, it's like this factory where they're, they're, it's, you're like on a conveyor belt. You're being thrown the enormous amounts of knowledge, which you're quickly being asked to assimilate, reproduce on tests, uh, and, and, and the goal is to get you through the, the, this process into a, into a good college, which is really the only goal of, uh, uh, as far as I can tell. They couldn't care less whether you like the stuff, you don't like the stuff. The goal is to get you into a good college. Now... What that does is it produces people who are very competent, very, uh, you know, uh, bright, work uh, hard, but fundamentally very unlikely to take risks. Because taking risks involves potentially failing. And if you fail, you're, you're going to have a very tough time. When I was on the Yale Corporation, I asked Jeff Brenzel, who ran the admissions office, who's a brilliant, brilliant guy, I said to him, do we ever take kids who fail in a significant sense in high school? And he said, oh, no. I said, but do you, don't you agree how you respond to failure is probably one of the cardinal features of figuring out whether somebody is going to do well in life. It tells you a lot about people. He said, oh, yeah. So I said, then what should we do? And he said, well, you're the corporation. You tell me. If you want, it, you want us to take those people, we'll take them. We will slip on our rankings. We will slip on our win-loss ratios with Harvard and, and Stanford and Princeton, which are the only things that Yale really cares about. Um, you know, and we can do it if you want, but that's what the, the, the consequence is going to be. And then you, you look at what produces, um, you know, so you, what, what it seems to me is we're all producing people who are going to end up being corporate lawyers and, and bankers. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that I think that, my point is that they'd become that because these are low-risk, high-IQ uh, uh, professions where you become the sort of, you become the service class to the plutocracy. <laughs> you're not the plutocracy yourself, 
because that requires real taking real risks, innovating, being creative, being willing to fail. But you become the, the you know, the service class to those people. What a great is, phrase. Is that, is that really what you should be doing with this incredible resource of education that you have and these incredible opportunities? Because I think that, you know, we again, we fundamentally misunderstand what it means to, to be happy, to be fulfilled, that's one side of it, but also to just be creative and innovative. So we all now think if everybody does coding, that'd be great. So you go out and get a degree in computer science and you go and work at Intel and you will work on some chip uh, and you'll keep making it a little bit better. Maybe that makes you very innovative and creative because it sounds cool and you're in the tech industry and everyone thinks that that's super cool. But I think the guy who I regard as more creative from a business point of view is this guy who walked into a, cafe, a coffee shop one day and he noticed that you were paying 50 cents for a cup of coffee. And he said, you know what? I can make you pay $7 for the same cup of coffee. <laughs> and it will totally transform the way you think of yourself when you enter that store and you will thank me for paying $7 for that coffee and you will think of yourself as a different human being because of that process. Now, to do that, is to understand human beings much more than it is to understand chips. And that's what I think our education doesn't spend enough time trying to th ask you, to, you know, teach you to do. Leon, what makes a great teacher? Before I get to that, I do want to uh, second uh, Fareed's um, mistrust of the uh, private schools in New York. So if there, we were not in a democratic society, what I would do was outlaw private schools, force the upper middle class back in the public schools, and then the people who really need a good education would get it because the parents wouldn't put up uh, with the mediocrity. And the public schools do it. The private schools do a terrible job, particularly in science, where the area of innovation and creativity is absolutely crucial. Misunderstanding of science as facts. Um, so um, I, I don't have any uh, uh, brief for that. I have no brief for the admissions policies that are driven by rankings. My, the admissions policy of a place like Yale reminds me of if you measured hospitals by mortality rates. <laughs> the way you would have the best hospital is simply admit people who aren't sick. <laughs> So um, uh, this is, uh, is an offense to common sense, I agree. So in answer, very simple, I, I, I am a believer in scholarship. You know, I edit a scholarly journal, and I believe that real knowledge is about detail. You know, I, 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 knowing something in real detail, I have a great admiration for great scholarship, archival scholarship, people that do, you know, I have great admiration for Tony Grafton. I have, you know, they're, they're historians and, and, and in my field, the, the musicologists that really do the really important, detailed, look at new archival material. That, that kind of scholarship is indispensable and you need academic training for it. The problem is, we have to make the connection between the intellectual tradition and the conduct of life. Is the study of philosophy, the study of literature, the study of history transformative about the decisions I'm going to make in my private and public life as an individual and as a citizen? Is it going to influence the way I spend my time, what I think about and what I do and what I choose to do? 
how do I act when faced as a citizen with the opportunities to exercise or not exercise my freedoms? So implicit is a connection between education and the quality of our democratic and public life. Therefore, you, if you are a great scholar, I believe you have to ask very big questions and fundamental questions, and you have to be able to communicate the importance of that question to young people. You have to explain to them why it's important to know something and to get it right and to not know what something is and to pursue or to contest views that are held. And um, in doing so, the, a great teacher is someone who invites a new young person into the enterprise without exercising authority or teaching by fear. And I disagree about the bad papers. I've learned more from what people, the mistakes people make, the errors they commit, and um, then from, if I study closely the work of Mozart, and I'm a composer, I would be driven to silence. But if I look at not such a good composer, I think I can do better than that. So a great teacher, I think every day, the last thing I would say about great teaching, I am in the work I do because of the teachers who taught me. If I think back on the great people who took me seriously at an age where I was obnoxious, <laughs> insecure, impossible, I wake up and think those people were saints. So the idea of seeing possibility in someone and treating them with dignity and equality and their capacity, not trying to impress them how much you know. You know, Heifetz was a terrible teacher. Someone would play, unlike Hazals, and then Heifetz would say, yeah, yeah, and he would tap the accompanist and play the same piece much better. That was the lesson. <laughs> Whereas, Kazals would play with you and urge you and stop and look at what you're doing and find your ways to fix it and give you the sense that you could be an artist. So it's that empathy and the belief that what you know is transformative, even if it looks entirely irrelevant um, and, and it's, it's arcane. And the joy of doing it, too many of our academics um, don't actually show the wonderment that they have in the material. I feel privileged. I open up Brahms' Second Symphony and I have to work with students of Brahms' Second Symphony. I died and went to heaven. They know that. They, know, they can feel it. I may be a terrible teacher, but they know I care deeply and love the subject. And for me, it's a matter of life and death. So it's the empathy the respect, the presumption of adulthood, the presumption of competence, and also to learn, I, 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 didn't, I don't mind grading the, the bad stuff. Um, uh, and um, so uh, great teaching is a real love of subject and a love of, of the person, an affection for the communication of it, and the belief that's important for the conduct of our collective life. You've been listening to the CUNY Lecture Series. For more, visit CUNY Radio online at cuny.edu slash radio. The CUNY Lecture Series is a production of the Office of University Relations.